Manifest Destiny, Montana. I don't think I'd ever heard the phrase Manifest Destiny. Then twice in one week it cropped up in my newsfeed. Back in 1845, the USA thought that Canada would request annexation eventually. Some claimed it was the right of Manifest Destiny to spread and possess the whole of the continent which Providence had given them for the development of the great experiment of liberty and self-government. U.S. expansion was used to justify the removal of Native groups from their homes. This rapid expansion intensified the issue of slavery as new states were added to the Union, leading to the Civil War. With high birth rates and immigration, the population of the states went from 5 million to 23 million, by 1850, the year my second great-grandmother, Mary Elizabeth Smith, was born in Canada. This is part of her story of what drove millions of Americans westward in search of new land and new opportunities. My second great-grandmother, Mary Elizabeth Smith Gibbs, was of Irish, Scottish, and German background. She was the product of many who came before, choosing to leave the shores, cross the Atlantic, and hope for a city built on a hilltop. Her birthday was July the 7th, 1850, born at St. Mary's, Ontario, in the township of Mornington. Her parents were homesteaders. Her father's James William Smith, a blacksmith by trade, immigrated from Ireland, and the men in his family had been British soldiers. Her mother, Mary Ann Wilson, was a descendant of Loyalists, settled in Ontario after the Revolutionary War. Mary Elizabeth was born into a large family of Smiths, six brothers and two sisters. She was seventh in a family of nine. At the age of four, Mary Elizabeth boarded the ship with her family that would take her across the Great Lakes to a new developing community at Port Hope, Michigan. There were no roads or highways. The only way was the water. Mary Elizabeth was eight when the sawmills and the chimneys were built in the new town. All of her brothers and sisters were born at St. Mary's, Ontario, except for George the year they moved in 1854 and Lendley, 1859, both born at Port Hope. The Smiths were again pioneering, building up the brand new community that would become a major lumber exporting port. Civil War broke out when she was 11. Michiganders were critical of slavery, and many were abolitionists. After President Lincoln called for volunteers, Michigan was called upon to furnish infantry, cavalry, engineers, and mechanics. 90,000 men left the state, or about a quarter of the men. Although the Gibbs were registered, I did not find them joining in the actual fight, possibly because they were considered aliens from Canada, and it wasn't their fight. The men on the farms helped to feed the troops, though, and Michigan forests provided lumber for war materials. No Civil War battles happened in Michigan. When Mary Elizabeth was 17, her mother died at the age of 48. That same year, when Mary Elizabeth was 17, she married my second great-grandfather, Hiram Gibbs, who was born at Farnham, Brome, Missisquoi, Quebec. Hiram was 26. The wedding took place at Huron, Michigan, on May the 8th, 1867, four months after her mother died. 
Three years later, Mary Elizabeth and a new baby, Nellie, moved back home to housekeep for her widowed father, James William Smith, and the young brothers, George and Lendley. I assume Hiram was maybe away in a logging camp. The next year, the devastating Huron fire swept through the region, 1871. James Smith and Hiram Gibbs would probably attend the Mason Lodge at Port Hope, and relief efforts were distributed from there, coming from across the Great Lakes. By the 1880 census, the couple were farming and their family had expanded. Hiram was 34, Elizabeth 29. Children named Nellie, 11, James, 8, Charles, 6. My grandfather, George Arthur, was 5, Marion was 3, and Nettie, 1. Hiram's brother, John Gibbs, is listed on the same census in 1880, married to Sarah. Their children's names were William, Annie, John, Rachel, Herman, and Winifred. Can you imagine the Sunday gatherings feeding all these cousins growing up together on the shores of Port Huron on the lake at Michigan? The parents had already lived through that devastating fire of 1871. The Huron Daily Tribune wrote an article in the newspaper. It said the Smith home built in 1866. A beautiful, elegant structure stood in the path of the fire, but it escaped. Was this the home of William James Smith, Elizabeth's father? I do not know. The brothers Hiram and John Gibbs would comfort each other with thoughts of, the first good rain will come and put the fires out. Alas, there was no rain, only dry, hot, hot winds. The year of 1881, another drought would hit their farming and logging community. The wind was lurking, ready to march to the sea, and burnt down the town of Port Hope again. Once again, the Gibbs scanned for smoke on a Monday morning, September 5th. They had no knowledge that the greatest calamity was about to explode around them. At 2 p.m., the wind was howling, and volumes of smoke were seen in the west. Suddenly, a great cloud of darkness covered the entire area. All was darkness. They had to light lamps. The heat grew until it was almost impossible to breathe, and the wind had a hurricane force. Then everything burst into flame. The new brick county courthouse was built of brick. 400 people crowded into the tall, stately building. There were weeping children, crying children, and grim-faced men all sheltering in the building. At sundown, there was a lull in the wind. All the buildings in the little town had burned. Hiram and Mary Elizabeth settled the children between them on the oak floor and spent an uncomfortable night. For days after, smoke and flying ashes blotted out the sun. The families would rely on the newly formed Red Cross to provide food and clothing. John and Susan Gibbs and family would remain at Port Hope, but Hiram and Mary Elizabeth decided to accept their manifest destiny. The towering forests of Michigan, once so majestic, were wiped out during the two thumb fires that swept through after severe droughts in the region. Then winds swept the fires for miles through the area up to the shores of Lake Huron. Hiram and Mary Elizabeth Gibbs had a decision to make. They decided to go west. 
Two of their children married in Iowa, so I deduce that that is the way they went, and they stayed long enough for them to find love. West, the family continued on, leaving Michigan, and Mary Elizabeth's aging father, James William Smith, was 80. He would die at age 82 on December 1, 1890, in Gore, Michigan. Nearly 2,000 miles through Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, and South Dakota, the family went. Here a forced stop was made. Mary Elizabeth bore down. She was 37 years old, about to give birth to her last child. Coming west for them were sons and daughters, James Abraham, 15, Charles Hiram, 13. My grandfather, George Arthur, was 12. Marion, Anna, was 10. Nettie, Estella, 8. Lindley, 5. Behind at Fort Hope, she'd left two babies in graves. William Henry, 1881, and Minnie, 1884, both only living for two weeks. Her oldest daughter, Nellie Mary, at age 17, had already married Abraham Applegate in 1885 in Iowa. Rachel Lillian Frances Gibbs made her appearance on September 19, 1887. The Gibbs family had just crossed into the southeast corner of the Dakotas, when her back ache started. This paused their journey. Then Mary Elizabeth had looked out over the steep embankment of the Missouri River at Deer, Hughes County, South Dakota. It was not a state yet, being Dakota Territory, but it is where they would register Rachel's birth. Should they stay here and put down roots? The Dakota Territory had been open for settlement in 1858, but there were very few takers. Hiram and Elizabeth were just ahead of the boom that would start the next year that would bring abundant rain. The swarms of locusts were gone, and free land was offered in the Homestead Act. The discovery of gold in the Black Hills and the coming of the railroad would lead to explosive growth, but the family traveled on. Pierre at the time was the end of the rail line and riverboat. From here they would travel on once Mary and Rachel were strong enough. They were destined to take a wagon train headed west along a 200-mile route known as the Fort Pierre to Deadwood Trail. It was an old buffalo trail used by the natives and fur traders. They carefully loaded up the wagons pulled by teams of draft animals, usually oxen. Deadwood was a lawless, rowdy mining camp, and they kept going. Mary Elizabeth bit into the apple she had plucked from their own orchard. She was enjoying the cool nights and long, sunny days in this valley. It was certainly different from their lake home of Fort Hope, Michigan. This home, close to Kalispell, in the Bitterroot, was known for its higher quality apples with varieties including the Macintosh. The cherries had already been picked, leaving her pink and red stained fingertips. The mild lake influenced climate, pure water and fertile soil had given them an abundant crop of the pleasantly sweet and very juicy fruit. It was a busy time with pickings from the second week of July into the month of August. Now it was time for the apples. The original inhabitants of Ch Chief Charlo's remnant band of Salish were forced onto their Flathead reservation in 1891. Copper had been found, and a man named Marcus Daly, the Copper Baron, began buying land, 
building irrigation ditches, and planting orchards. Mr. Daly was concerned with feeding his miners at Butte and Anaconda. Then real estate investors came buying the land cheaply and selling the promise of an easy and profitable small farm. At first, Hiram and son Lendley found work being day laborers in the district. By 1903, in a local Kalispell directory, Hiram was listed as fruit grower. There had been planted 300,000 apple trees in this boom, which a hundred years later can still be found as gnarled remnants or thriving amongst the new orchards there. Any boom does not last. Production would dwindle as pests, including the coddling moth, arrived. There was another problem. Fruit growers were often swindled by middlemen who never paid after the animals apples were shipped east. Is this what happened to Hiram? A family meeting was called in 1903. The first to arrive was James Abraham Gibbs, the oldest boy. Abraham had married a girl named Cynthia Anna Tribble in Iowa, 1897. They came to the Flathead Valley. Abraham came home at noon and found his wife not well. She complained of feeling very bad, but she seemed to have smothering spells. Abram asked if he should write for her mother to come. She objected, but finally assented. She grew worse rapidly, and at one o'clock he sent for the doctor, who was unable to ward off the chilly hands of death, and she passed five minutes after the doctor arrived. Abraham buried his young wife, Cynthia, age 20, in the Demersville Cemetery, Kalispell, Flathead County, Montana. This was printed in the Jefferson, Iowa, souvenir paper, May 22, 1897. Next to come home was Charles Hiram, age 29. He'd just become married on July the 19th, 1903, at Chattawagua, Flathead, Montana, to a young 15-year-old Pearl Young. Mary and Anna, at 18, had married David Harvey Young in 1894. She had given them their first grandchildren, Orlin William McKinley Young, born in 1896, and the next year, 1897, Ines was born nearby in Kalispell. The next daughter, Nettie Estella, at age 18, had married William Franklin Hughes in 1897. A granddaughter, Grace L., was born in the spring of 1899. Another girl, Violet Crystal, was the newborn at the meeting of 1903. George Arthur, my great-grandfather, had at age 22 married Lydia May Ruth Wise. She was 16. Within the next three years, they had three grandchildren for Mary Elizabeth and Hiram, all of Vivian, April 23, 1899, my grandmother, Arthur Howard, a boy, 1900, and Mary Minerva, November 15, 1901. Lendley Edgar, 21, and Rachel Lillian Francis, 16, were still single, living at home. But my, what an extended family they had at this meeting. And what did these families decide? Their manifest destiny would send them to the newly opened homestead site at Viking, Alberta. At the beginning of this blog, I mentioned manifest destiny. The article I was reading was referring to Alberta making threats to leave the Canadian Federation. Once again, Manifest Destiny 
the American dream of controlling the entire continent would be revived at the prospect of welcoming Alberta as its 51st state. This would strengthen their energy markets, and Canada would be dependent on them for its energy. I doubt Hiram and Mary Elizabeth gave this much thought. They were just looking for opportunities for their large extended family and land, not political ideology or visionary speculations.